Hello, and welcome to the Heart of Equity podcast from the Heartland chapter of the National Association of Health Services Executives, also known as NASI. I'm your host, Pleasant Radford Jr. I am a health equity professional, a healthcare leader, and a member of the NASI Heartland chapter. In our last episode, St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter talked about how local government partnered closely with local health systems to weather the pandemic and address social determinants of health for St. Paul residents. Again, Mayor Carter is a fifth-generation St. Paul resident and the first Black mayor of the city. In this episode, we're continuing our conversation with Mayor Carter to talk about how local policy initiatives can help healthcare systems do their jobs better. This is a critical connection that many healthcare executives, especially in Black communities, often miss until there's a crisis. We'd also like to thank Care Content, our partner for producing this podcast. Care Content is a full-service digital marketing agency that helps healthcare organizations create a web presence that reaches their audiences. If your health system needs help with digital marketing, website redesigns, or social media, please visit carecontent.com. Now, let's continue with part two of our discussion with St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. You've done a lot in that first term, and you were reelected for a second term. As you think about all the things that you did in that first term and into the second term, what have been your biggest learning lessons on how local government can partner with the health sector? And then that second question is, what could that relationship look like moving forward? It's a great question. I mean, and, you know, so much of what we do, we raise the minimum wage. We've invested in affordable housing. Uh, I would argue that those have uh, critical health links and access to health. We uh, launched a college savings accounts initiative in St. Paul. Every child born in our city is born $50 in a college savings account. I always tell parents, if you have a child in St. Paul and you don't want your child to have a college savings account, there's paperwork to fill out because we really mean every single child born in our city. We start with a college savings account. We've launched uh, now two guaranteed income pilots where we take low-income families with very young children and say, listen, here's $500 a month in unconditional cash transfers for you to invest in your family. You know, a lot of times, uh, Pleasant, when we do this anti-poverty stuff, we tell families, here's some money, but you can only spend this on food or you can only spend this on health care. You can only spend this on child care. And every time we do that, we're telling those families that we in City Hall, we in the nation's capital, we know more about what your children need than you do. When my oldest daughter was born, uh, we were on WIC. The listeners here know a lot about WIC. It's Nutritional Supports for Women, Infants, and Children. And at the time, you could leave a grocery store with more peanut butter, uh, more milk, uh, more cheese, more eggs than you could possibly figure out what to do with with three people. But here's the thing. My daughter was born allergic to milk, allergic to eggs, and uh, with a life-threatening allergy to peanuts. And so we would go through the grocery store with this government subsidy and be able to buy all the peanut butter we wanted in the world, uh, but none of the almond butter she could actually consume. We could buy all the cow's milk we could possibly think of what to do with, but none of the soy milk that she could actually drink, and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, and it's hurtful, uh, but it's a prominent example of how when we try to tell families, one, every family needs the same thing, and two, we know in City Hall what that thing is more than the families do. 
uh, that we can actually create pain as opposed to creating solutions for families. So uh, we've launched this guaranteed income pilot that says we're just going to invest in you. We know you know what our, your family needs. It's space pleasant that uh, is full of, I think, racist and classist tropes of like what, quote unquote, those people will do if you give them money. And so to debunk some of those tropes, we've created a center for guaranteed income research. And amazingly, we're finding that when those people have money, they spend it on groceries, they spend it on rent, they gain employment, they go to work, and they do a lot of the same stuff that we would do. And so hopefully we are uh, debunking the myth of a they in the first place and realizing that this is just about one big we in the first place. If we feel a healthier, more stable, more balanced community, then we can send our police officers into a much different job than they've had to do historically. The same is true for our doctors and for our nurses and for our midwives and our healthcare professionals. If we can invest in our communities in the way that we want to, uh, the research is so clear about the impacts of things like guaranteed income, minimum wage, college savings accounts on families like social, emotional uh, well-being. And that can put our healthcare providers in a fundamentally different space. And so having that trade-off, having that playoff, having that partnership uh, is, I think, absolutely critical. And then that's what gives us the opportunity. College savings accounts is a perfect example. It's not really just about putting $50 in the bank and coming back and seeing what happened uh, 18 years later. Uh, research tells us that children from low and moderate income families who graduate from high school with more than $1 in college savings are three times more likely to go to college, and that's exciting. But the real theory is, if we can start a relationship with families right when that child is born, where they can see that they're benefiting directly from the relationship that they have, well, then we have a conversation started. We have a relationship started where we can say, hey, let's make sure your child gets to their well-child visits. Let's make sure you get that checkup. Let's make sure that we're, um, that, that we're raising this child in a way that is not just economically, uh, but that is um, uh, sustainable on a holistic uh, framework. And so I think there's lots of opportunities for that relationship. I think it's going to require all of us kind of figuring out how to get out of our silos. And probably the biggest challenge of it is our healthcare providers certainly over these last two years have been in crisis every moment of every day. Uh, mayors, uh, police officers, municipal leaders have been in crisis every minute of every single day. Uh, and it's going to take some some something to sort of zoom out and say, wait a minute, how do we get beyond just triaging the right now emergency and start thinking about what the generational future is we're building for our community? Yeah, the constant themes that I keep hearing in our conversation are true community engagement, and that means listening to community and not assuming whoever it is that's making that decision for community knows what's best. And we're lucky because we have a really incredible human resources director here in St. Paul. One of our uh, mantras is that we don't just do backstage stuff. Our Office of Technology in the city, they know they got to keep our printers running, but they also got to go out in our rec centers and you know launch robotics teams in our low-income neighborhoods. Our city attorney's office has got to protect the city from liability, but they also got to go help people get expungements and help people get their life back. In the same way, we think of our human resources department, not just as opening up you know, job openings and things like that, but saying, how do we really invest in the human resources that exist in our city? And uh, this is where our human resources uh, director, who I think you've met once or twice and, and know pretty yeah, well. I think so. You're right, you're right. Has helped us to develop an ethic uh, that ultimately says, 
uh, when we make big changes in St. Paul, we do it with big groups of people. That goes right back to what I said on the front end, that if we're going to make decisions that benefit a wider group of people, uh, logic would dictate that the only way to do that sustainably is by bringing those bigger groups of people into the room like you just mentioned. One of the most critical ways you can help promote health equity is to make sure your health system is doing business with Black-owned companies. This creates career opportunities, builds generational wealth, and allows us to control our own resources. For our Buy Black Vendor Spotlight, we'd like to highlight Diversity Telehealth, a minority-owned organization that specializes in helping companies, communities, and agencies take advantage of telemedicine technologies to reduce their costs, improve their care, and save lives. For more information, please visit www.diversitytelehealth.com. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Well, you've named so many initiatives already. Are there additional health initiatives that you haven't shared that you want to share with us? And more importantly, how are you working together so that both healthcare and government are doing their jobs better? I don't know that we could even get through the list of all the ways that we've had to figure out how to partner with our local health community. One of the things that we really benefited greatly from, particularly as we were trying to get people to make sure they got the vaccine, uh, to make sure they had the most recent up-to-date information, we had a group of, in particular, African-American nurses and doctors who said, we got this. We're going to go vaccinate people, grab volunteers, go from church to church to church to rec centers to community members, you know, right in the neighborhood and bring this message directly. So it ain't the president said you should get vaccinated. It ain't, you know, the mayor said you could get vaccinated. It ain't even Dr. So-and-so said you get vaccinated. It's my church member, you know, who I know is, is an expert in this stuff. It's that guy I play golf with or play basketball with. It's that guy I grew up with who I actually know is an expert in this stuff who, who wouldn't tell me wrong. And so having that level of partnership was really critical. And then even some of the partnerships, uh, because, you know, we'd be remiss, Pleasant, yeah. if we had this whole conversation without mentioning mental health. We used to say mental health is a silent killer, yeah. but it's really not. Mental health is a killer because we're silent. And figuring out ways for us to put the infrastructure in community uh, so that community members can, one, know that you're not in this alone. You know, anybody I know who's been through depression and been through, you know, kind of severe mental health crisis is 100% sure they're the only one who's ever been through that. And so us telling our stories, us magnifying those stories is critical. Uh, But then a part of that, too, is I think thinking about who we trust already. When we see partnerships where we say, hey, let's engage our barbers, uh, let's engage our beauticians, yeah. uh, let's engage our pastors. Those are the folks. Look, we, you want to know something <laughs> about the African-American community. You go to a barbershop, <laughs> a beauty shop. You get a church, download of everything. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, everything you need to know. I go to the barbershop to find out what I need to be doing right now. And a lot of us who won't go to a doctor. A lot of us who won't see a psychiatrist uh, will tell our barber, will definitely tell our pastor. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'm excited to help do. It's something we sort of drop some kind of nuggets around trying to help build out 
and infrastructure so that our pastors, our barbers, those community messengers, those trusted community messengers who are already existing community, uh, who we already are used to talking to, have an easy path to say, hey, that sounds like a lot. You know, I want to connect you to a friend of mine. I want, you know, we'll have uh, after service on Sunday, uh, we'll have somebody here who I think you should talk to. I think building out those types of networks could really be transformational for all of our work. Absolutely. Well, once you have ended your tenure as mayor, what would you hope to have accomplished around health equity in St. Paul? Pleasant. I always tell folks as proud as I am about the what's, about the things that we're doing from, you know, adding 26 miles of bike lanes to our community, to tripling free programs in our rec centers for our young people, to eliminating late fines in our libraries so every family can afford to use the St. Paul Public Library. I'm even more proud of the how. The theory behind everything that we do is that families have got to be, uh, every individual, every member of our community, every child, has got to be owner stakeholders of the processes uh, and the policies that impact their lives. I believe that if families feel empowered at City Hall, that's the only time they'll try to go to the state capital and the nation's capital. And so our goal certainly is to create the infrastructure in St. Paul in an equitable way that allows all the members of our communities to uh, experience their fullest life in our community when we add bike lanes or when we create the nation's first electric vehicle car share powered entirely by renewable energy. When we do those things, we always have to look at the map because, uh, you know, we're going to make our communities light up on those color-coded maps on some good things too. And so we have to look at those maps and make sure we're doing those things equitably and building that equitable, whether it's transit, uh, whether it's housing, uh, whether it's jobs, uh, we're going to do all of those things equitably And so we want to be able to demonstrate how local city municipal infrastructure can impact health outcomes. And I think we have the opportunity to do that. Even beyond that, we want to empower families, we want to empower our residents to be their own champions with their city council member, their teachers, their healthcare providers. And if we put families in the driver's seat like that, I believe we'll see some enormous outcomes. One of the things that has been something of an aha to me, frankly, I actually learned this from voters as I was running for re-election, is that the tie that binds really everything that we're doing together is this abandonment of the historic and traditional model of city building, which really centers around public safety and economics. Uh, I think of the public safety uh, traditional approaches as sort of like the wild, wild west. We're going to search our town for the bad guys and root them out. Uh, And then our economic strategies end up being quite the opposite. It's we're going to search the world, the planet, everywhere else except for our own community for potential, and we're going to invest our dollars uh, to lure that potential, whether that's workforce or businesses or entrepreneurs here to our community. What we're trying to do, and hopefully this is the story of St. Paul, is we're trying to be really unapologetic and very aggressive in waking up every day to find new ways to bet on our residents, to double down on our children, to double down on our families. That involves both the financial investment and that core belief that our families know what to do with their money, that if we trust people, they'll, they'll show us why they're deserving of that trust. And that's our goal is to just demonstrate what a community can look like when the road to its future is paved on betting on its own residents. I love that. I'm excited about it. Super exciting. My challenge to the providers who are listening to this, my challenge to the nonprofits I talk to, my challenge to the businesses and to the public sector leaders, anybody I talk to is when it comes time to say, hey, 
we need to be serving this community or that community better. When we identify communities that we want to serve better, uh, it's not about shutting our door and coming up with strategies and whiteboarding our, our best ideas on how we can do that. If our work has not benefited that community in the way that we want it to, we haven't heard that community as loud and as clear as we want it to. What it means is members of that community haven't been involved in our decision-making process as clearly as we want it to. The question is, what is equity? Yeah. Because a lot of times we have no, like, we'll say the word, we fly the flag, we rally around the word. And most times we define it based on what it's not. We know when something's not equity, but you can't get something, you can't build something based on what it's not. So we have to know yeah. what it is. And so for me, I go back to my time uh, in the business school at Florida A&M University. And when my dean said the word equity, uh, she didn't mean anything amorphous. Uh, when she said equity, she was talking about a money word. The characteristics of equity are ownership in uh, appreciating assets, transferable assets that we can pass to our children, one. Uh, it's participation in decision-making power, two. And three, it's participating in, a, in an economy. If I own equity in a company, that company has a good quarter, then I have a good quarter too. That's our challenge for everybody who wants to drive equity, whether it's health equity or housing equity or economic equity, is that work for us centers around those three things. It's first, how do we make sure that we are creating opportunities for families to be owners, both the sort of symbolic owners in city government, but also very much the tangible, literal owners of appreciating assets. Two, how do we invite more people from whatever community we think we can serve better into the decision-making processes, not as you know, sort of you know, uh, peripheral advisors of things that don't really matter anyways, but literally making decisions about money, um, and three, there's no way probably to do the first two without building systems that say, listen, as our skyline grows, as our tax base expands, we're going to make it just easier for somebody to pay the rent. Last question then. What advice would you give future government leaders about prioritizing health equity in their cities and building trust among their constituents, especially when facing a crisis like a pandemic or civil unrest? One of my mentors when I became mayor gave me two pieces of advice. He said, listen, the first thing you have to know is there's not one person alive, not even you, who knows everything you need to know to do the job you just signed up for the way you just told us you can do it. And he said, but two, uh, and this is just as important, in this city, there are 300,000 people who know everything you need to know to be able to do this job the way it needs to be done. My advice for government leaders, my advice for leaders of families, my advice for leaders of uh, healthcare lead, anybody else, is if you want to serve a community better, be the one who listens the closest. Uh, be the one who listens the most actively, not just to the words that come out of somebody's mouth, uh, but to the ways in which the, the members of that community, the members of those families uh, vote with their feet every single day and demonstrate what's important, what's needed, what's critical. Uh, and we really can uh, if we listen, but then also if we allow people to touch our hearts because we find ourselves explaining to people why we can't just all of a sudden change things that we all know are just plain wrong. That both uh, creates a conviction, but it also creates an urgency that helps us realize the enormous toll on humanity, our inaction or our patience uh, can take. It, it helps us understand when we look at things through a lens of risk and how much risk it takes to do something different. The risk that I'm most terrified of is that 
we'll do things the same. Yeah. Mayor Carter, thank you so much for touching our hearts and sharing a little bit about what you do in the ever-changing healthcare landscape in St. Paul. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I appreciate you. I appreciate the invitation and I'll take it easy. If you're a healthcare executive in Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa, Kansas, or Missouri who cares about health equity for people of color, please consider joining the National Association of Health Services Executives Heartland Chapter at nasiheartland.org. That is N-A-H-S-E heartland.org. For more episodes of the Heart of Equity podcast, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. And while you're there, please leave us a comment. Thank you for listening.